Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Peter Sainsbury. Peter is the owner and creator of the Carbon Risk Substack, and we're talking carbon today. We cover voluntary markets, we cover compliance markets, we cover some of the politics surrounding carbon. So I really hope you enjoy the show. I think this is a good one. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Hey, Peter, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jay. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Yeah, no problem. So the last couple of times you've been on, we talked about compliance markets, mostly EUAs, uh, what the EU is doing with their carbon market. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the voluntary market, how that works, kind of how it differentiates itself from the EU. You know, it's, it's clearly, you know, whether EU compliance market and other markets around the world, like you know, California and elsewhere, you know, they're regulated markets. You know, there's a, a legal obligation for obligated emitters to actually purchase evidence to, to meet the targets. Uh, whereas, you know, voluntary markets are largely, you know, pretty much unregulated. You know, that being said, you know, although they're very small at the moment in terms of overall, you know, amount of money traded, they could potentially be, you know, multiple times, you know, growth over the next 10 to 15 years as, as companies and governments try and meet their net zero obligations. So, you know, you've, we've, we've got is a kind of a different uh, market where, you know, corporates in based in North, North America, Europe or, or elsewhere are looking to offset their emissions. And they do that using various different types of projects. You know, they can be kind of nature based or kind of technology based projects, either looking to, you know, avoid additional emissions or actually to, you know, capture emissions. So either through that could be either through uh, growing forests or actual, you know, technology capture to actually, you know, sucking uh, carbon out of the atmosphere in some particular way. And so, yeah, what we've seen recently, well, just to give you an idea of the sort of the scale of the the prices that are traded in those different markets, whereas with the EU carbon market, we're looking around, you know, kind of eighty to ninety euros a ton. In the, the voluntary carbon market, it's much much lower, so around about. You know, around about 10 euros a ton in comparison, five to 10 euros. So very different markets. Uh, and part of that reflects the degree to which, you know, they're regulated and there's a legal compliance. But it, part of it also reflects the perceived quality of the different markets. Because with a voluntary market, you're, you as a company are trying to present evidence that emissions have been offset somewhere else in the world as evidence that you've actually reduced your emissions and you know towards a net zero uh, position there's a, a real challenge in kind of being able to assess the quality of those projects and the degree to which they actually offset emissions from what i understand there's a couple issuers out there in the voluntary market and each has their own reputation so you know there's gold standard there's vera and I was listening to a Smarter Markets podcast with the Vera CEO, and he mentioned, you know, the four categories they need, one of which being a permanent removal of carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah. So what he said is that when they approve a project, like a forestation project, they actually keep some of the credits just in case there's a forest fire, for example. Yeah. And then that way they know that even if the forest burns down, they can still cover those offsets. I wonder if there, if you've found anything like that in your research. Yeah, that, that's right. I think um, I think they allow something roughly, I think, sort of ten to twenty percent as a as a potential, you know, for that risk of you know either you know the project not going to plan, either either through some kind of forest uh, forest fire, uh, 
um, you know, disease outbreak or, or some other event that kind of you know means it's it's not achieving its aims. So I mean that that's partly the reason why there's been such interest recently on you know kind of technology capture. You know, particularly there's been a lot of sort of VC funding going into you know either direct air capture or other sort of technology methods that you know take carbon out of the atmosphere. They mineralize it. You know, it's stored for, for for potentially hundreds or thousands of years. There is an argument that carbon needs to be priced not just on the basis of you know is it being taken out of the atmosphere, but you know how how long is that that state of permanence and you know what's the risk of that that carbon uh, re-emerging into the atmosphere. I think different people, different developers take different views on it. You could argue, you know, if we're trying to, you know, the next 10, 10, 20 years is the critical time period, then, you know, do we really need to worry about whether it's going to be permanent for 100, 200 or 300 years? You know, surely perhaps we should, you know, maybe just ramp up, you know, that kind of sort of short-term capture of carbon and then, you know, look at other methods, you know, as they become more economically viable and, you know, the costs come down. Yeah, I think there's different approaches. And I think also that's the sort of high level technology capture that I was talking about. That that's extraordinarily expensive, you know, relative to the nature-based solutions. So whereas you're looking at like 10 euros a ton for a, a forestry project, it could be upwards of you know, you know, well over 100 euros a ton, you know, up to sort of 500 a ton or, or, or beyond for these technology projects. And what a number of companies are doing, like, you know, Stripe and others, they're, they're kind of trying to be market leaders in that field to try and help sort of, you know, develop the market at a very early stage to hopefully bring down those costs. Uh, because at the moment, they're really kind of out, out of the reach for, for, you know, for most, you know, most companies. Yeah, that's hard to find places to buy credits like when you go to fly on an airplane say you can offset your emission but those are credits that the airline owns that you're buying from them kind of thing another aspect that they mentioned was these credits need to be additional which i think is interesting because he mentioned that regulations kind of creep up behind the projects so you know as we become more climate conscious we're probably going to regulate our companies more so then some of these carbon projects will no longer be valid because they're no longer additional based on the new regulations. And the argument that the Vera CEO was making was that this is going to provide or create a supply crunch on voluntary credits because a lot of these projects that were approved at one time will no longer be able to approve. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it, that's the problem. We've got all this you know, massive backlog of historical credits, which were you know, generated and, you know, perhaps in, with good intentions at the time based on the, the methodologies that were, you know, deemed as being sound at the time. But as you say, you know, those those standards move on, you know, and unfortunately perhaps the price that people are willing to pay for those credits, even if people understand the, the degree of additionality that goes into them, you know, that ability to pay or, or degree that they're willing to pay for those credits has gone down. So you've got this massive backlog of credits that are almost worthless, but to some extent they're dragging down the more recent vintages, which have you know, potentially you know have a greater degree of additionality. You might be familiar with some of the, the sort of sort of crypto-related projects which are trying to affect kind of remove some of that additional you know that excess supply. So I'm not kind of familiar with the details of how they they work, but you know if that can or other measures can be used to kind of you know, get rid of those poorly designed credits or old credits, then uh, I think that would be a benefit to the rest of the market. 
Yeah, absolutely. And transparency is going to be key for this yeah. market. We're going to need to see where those credits come from and the unique signatures that they have associated with them, I yeah. think, for it to work. Have you looked into any of the public companies working within the voluntary space? And, and what are your thoughts on those structures? You know, a lot of them are in terms of listed companies are listed on the, like the NEO exchange in, in Canada, uh, you know, particularly companies like uh, Carbon Streaming. You've had, you know, there's other other ones like, uh, you know, as you mentioned, um, you mentioned Smarter Markets podcast, you know, the uh, ABEX exchanges, again, listed on NEO and, you know, they're looking at much more, a kind of a broader look at the the whole voluntary space. So it's not just about sort of project developing. I think it's, it's an interesting space. And I think at the moment they've suffered because of sort of recent poor prices in, in the voluntary carbon market and a lot of, un, you know, kind of uncertainty, you know, particularly around the use of credits in, in some sort of Southeast Asian countries. You know, to pick on you know, carbon streaming, you know, their share prices dropped, you know, I think, well below where they IPO'd back in 2021, I think it was. Part of that's been because of this kind of uncertainty over the issuance, issuance of credits in places like Indonesia, especially where they've got a you know, big part of their portfolio is one of you know, the projects based, based there. And also countries like you know, neighbouring Papua New Guinea as well, you know, are major issuance, issuers of credits, but again, are, you know, there's, there's a degree of uncertainty at the moment. And part of it, you know, all kind of centers on this uncertainty over double counting when it comes to achieving their, their nationally determined contributions. Because if they want to achieve their climate targets, they need to be very careful about avoiding double counting. They don't also, they don't want to give away their, their best assets to outside developers when, you know, as relatively you know, less developed countries or less well-off countries, they don't want to be left with the, the poorest quality but highest cost projects. So all that kind of uncertainty has meant that Indonesia has delayed the issuance of its you know, 2021 credits and you know, 2022. Carbon streaming as a company, that's you know, a major part of their you know, revenue streams or future revenue streams. That's what's you know, kind of marked down their share price. Yeah, and when we talk about NDCs, something I wanted to research what is generally contained within an NDC and what is generally not considered part of an NDC? I mean, every country is going to be different, but just a general scope, what have you seen working through the, the data? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, I think there's some a degree of uncertainty there about, you know, whether, you know, part of it's, you know, cutting their own emissions, but it's also, you know, the degree, the degree to which they can then trade that evidence with other countries around the world as well. So again, it all comes down, down to, you know, the rest of the voluntary mar- voluntary carbon market is, you know, how do you actually quantify these pieces of evidence and how, how can you trade them? Yeah, because with NDCs, it's obviously the compliance market. For us, when we discuss this, people are probably wondering, like, what are they talking about countries now and voluntary? But mm, it's easy it's, to get it's easy to get them kind of mixed together, just to where my head goes. But yeah, yeah, like, as far as, you know, countries trading with each other within compliance markets, that's that's a whole new beast. And it is similar to voluntary in some ways because it's, you know, on one side yeah. is companies and then on the other side is countries. Yeah, that's the thing I think is that they're going to become increasingly overlapped in terms of their, you know, how they work. And that's where we've got this kind of bottleneck in the, the voluntary carbon market at the moment is that regulatory uncertainty is, is creating that situation at the moment. Yeah, what what seems like a very sort of simple idea, you know, is massively complicated when it actually comes down to it. Like the EU isn't going to allow any voluntary credits, you know, moving forward. I forget the year exactly. 
but some countries do allow certain VCUs or VC voluntary credit units into their system. And I wonder how that would work with other countries say, oh yeah, these voluntary credits are allowed in ours. Now we can trade them to you. I wonder if at some point they might just demand that the voluntary credits are at the same level as compliance. Yeah, I, it's, it's difficult to know. I think that, you know, the, I think there's some degree of convergence is going to be going to be needed over over time. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, the market becomes a you know kind of a market for lemons. You know, you don't know what you're trading. Some part of the market part of the market becomes a you know a poor quality projects, and that, that undermines the rest of the the whole market. So, you know, I think we're I think it's a very uh, interesting space at the moment that you know we need this certainty about how it's going to develop, or otherwise it's going to be you know it's kind of stagnate for for some time. Yeah, I think it's interesting too how you said Indonesia is concerned that companies are going to come in and take all the low-hanging fruit, for lack of a better term. Because I, I saw a article that you wrote about the land demand that carbon financing is creating and and how they're they're buying up you know a whole bunch of land for these carbon projects. Mm. Do you think that that's one major industry that could be affected by this? And what else do you think could be affected by a surge in demand in the voluntary market that's exactly right i mean at the moment we've got this you know especially when you've got this issue of you know high agricultural prices you know there's a demand for land to grow grow agriculture you know it's not just about the you know the land for for countries to meet their their own climate targets you know at the moment the price of voluntary credits is just not high enough to offset the the incentive there is to deforest deforest areas you know, so that's one sort of side effect of the the high agricultural commodity prices at the moment that we've got is that, you know, we're still going to see deforestation. The voluntary carbon market isn't doing its job at the moment to, to be able to disincentivize that, that action. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, with places like Brazil, for example, where they have a lot of illegal deforestation. Mm. And you, you wonder at what point does a private company say, well, we're going to go in and protect this part of the forest. And we're going to do it with security forces. And then, you know, what happens there? All of a sudden you've got, you know, criminals in Brazil butting heads with private companies saying you can't cut down these trees. Do you think Mm -hmm. that that's that's something that could happen or any companies are going to try to do that? Yeah, I I mean, it's I think it's just the, you know, the logistical possibilities of it actually happening in practice. I think I think it's just so it's so so difficult for any any country you know any uh, army let alone you know an individual company to be able to actually enforce that so uh, and I think that's probably what we've seen in Brazil with you know even though the government might be acting tough in certain certain areas you know illegal loggers or you know or other you know elements of the you know business trying to exploit certain areas you know whether that's sort of miners you know I think there's, there's so many sort of holes that they can you know, in the security uh, apparatus there. So it's, you know, it's just not feasible, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's unfortunate too, because from a regulation standpoint, I think it would be really hard because mm. what you would have to pitch to the carbon guys, say Vera, would be how many trees would have been cut down illegally if we weren't here. So I'm, yeah. that would be a difficult sell, I think, to say, well, if we weren't here, then illegally it would probably be 100 trees because how do you prove it? Yeah, absolutely, and that comes again. The challenge in a lot of these projects is is proving that additionality. What you know, what would have happened if if we weren't here? You know? Yeah, you know, there's been some evidence of you know certain developers who have taken advantage of this need for you know or perception of additionality, and um, you know got round the rules and still 
you know, still generated the credits, you know, despite, you know, clearly this, this project would have still gone ahead yeah. um, in the absence of, of the credits. Yeah, for sure. And I know as well in the early days, they used to hand out the credits for the entire project at the beginning, whereas now, say for a forest, they give it the lifetime of the forest, but, mm. but now they have to wait until those credits have actually, you know, the carbon has been removed from the air before they get the credits. Yeah, that's right. So this kind of goes back to what you're saying, you know, in terms of keeping, you know, partly, you know, it's got keeping some aside just in case anything goes wrong with a project that they withhold those credits. Yeah, and, and that's right. They're under different conditions in different areas, you know, different species of trees will grow at different speeds and, and capture, you know, different amounts of, of carbon over time. So, you know, all of that needs to be verified, you know, to make the market trust that there's, you know, it is actually delivering its, its um, you know, what it says it is is doing. I think the, the the challenge is, you know, if if these projects say that they are only going to be viable with the help of the project with of the voluntary carbon market, then perhaps you know, kind of withholding those credits towards the end, or or, or as that those trees grow, you might potentially have to wait a long, long time to actually you know receive that revenue, despite having to put a massive upfront cost at the beginning of the project. So I think that's. You know, that's going to make it very challenging for these these developers to you know to try and expand their, their their capacity yeah certainly i think that's a very important factor when we talk about voluntary projects and you know there's going to be in my opinion a lot of companies coming public with this they're going to wait for the right time we've kind of taken a back seat a little bit due to mm. the war and uh, inflation and commodities and all the other crazy things that have been going on yeah but you know you know once things settle down i could see a lot of public companies coming out with carbon financing and mm. something that people i think will need to consider is how long is it going to take for those carbon projects to actually produce offsets yeah and you know what types of projects are going to create them the quickest so maybe technology rather than nature-based what do you think about that just quickly before we go into compliance? yeah that, that, i agree i think i think the people recognize there's there's risks in both you know there's with nature-based projects there's clearly risks that are outside of your control in terms of the environment or you know sort of a kind of sort of carbon credit nationalism from governments uh but there's also you know technology-based risks as well especially when you're dealing with new and potentially unproven technologies that you know are still at a very very early stage yeah absolutely so just moving on to compliance then because i know you're in the uk so we can talk a little bit well, you guys have your own carbon market, but you're very yeah, close to the EU. The European Union wants to push speculators out, from what I understand. What's going on there? So there's been concern about speculators in the market for, for many years. And it tends to come from, you know, particularly those countries, you know, maybe sort of some of the Eastern European countries that have perhaps some of the highest exposure to carbon prices. And it always tends to happen when carbon prices spike and then this this kind of concern that you know nasty speculators have been in the market and been pushing up pushing up prices so the the european commission commissioned a report i believe um, it was carried out uh last year and i think they were the final report was published around sort of february march this year uh looking at the the impact you know the market structure and you know the impact of different groups within the european carbon market and they, and they found really you know no evidence that that speculators were involved with, you know, actually pushing up prices. But that, that being said, uh, in the last sort of couple of weeks, the you know various parts of the the kind of EU sort of political apparatus, you know, have proposed restricting speculators from a accessing the physical 
carbon market. So it's important to take make a distinction between you know the physical carbon market where you actually might be buying a an allowance. So you're actually re, re, you know, restricting that allowance off the market, and that means that a a compliance buyer, so like a, a utility based in Germany, cannot buy that allowance from the the futures market, which you know, helps with price discovery and risk management, but doesn't actually restrict supply. So the, what the, the EU are, f- are proposing is that they, the speculators are restricted in some way from accessing, you know, the physical market. So even though there's no evidence of this, you know, speculators actually manipulating this market or restricting supply, that, that's what they're, they seem to be targeting at the moment. So from what I can see, based on what things have been said, you know, I, this, this shouldn't make any big impact on, you know, the appetite for speculators to get involved in the market. You know, the, the futures market is, you know, it continues to be open to, for speculators to, to, to buy, sell and, and trade, trade the market. Yeah, it sounds like to me, just with your explanation there, all you would do if you were a speculator holding one of these physical, for lack of a better term, assets, yeah, you would just, if you were forced to sell, you'd just carry that money over and rebalance it to the futures market. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. The only sort of you know, different ish, issues you face from the, the futures market is the, you know, the potential, the role yield when you go into, into the next year's contract. But, you know, I think that's, that's relatively small in, in comparison. So, you know, there's, there's always this, criticism around you know lots of different markets you know whether commodity markets or the carbon market you know about when prices go high is that speculators are you know we need to clamp down on speculators but you know whether it's governments or the eu or any other you know governing body uh, they, they always kind of miss the the point that speculators you know help with price discovery they they provide liquidity and without them being operating you know operating in the market you know the spreads tend to be much higher you know, it's a lot more costly for you know, actual compliance buyers and, you know, in the market to actually, you know, manage their risk. So, you know, it, it, I think, you know, it, they need to be careful not to sort of damage the market and make it worse for the rest of, you know, the rest of the people that actually need to buy these, these things. Absolutely. And w- when we talk about futures markets, it's interesting because I've been doing a lot of work on oil lately. You know, I don't have a traditional background in this stuff, so I have to learn through alternative methods, but from what I understand, the futures market, some people may consider that the paper market. And then, you know, the physical market is when you actually accept the oil on like a truck bed or a tanker or whatever. So various analysts have their own opinions, but the one analyst that I was following, he suggested that the oil market could be as large, the paper market could be as large as 50 times larger than the physical market for oil. I wonder how large you think the paper market for carbon is in comparison to the physical market and how, how much could it grow? I think the analyst that you're referring to is, is, is correct. And, you know, that, that kind of broad magnitude, I, I don't have the figures for what the, the EU carbon market is, but, you know, the multiples are much smaller than what the, the oil market is at the moment in terms of specul- uh, futures versus physical market. You know, as I said, I think the larger it gets, you know, the better it is for the market in terms of, you know, price discovery and, and being able to manage risk. So, I think people need to be very careful about, you know, kind of damaging, spe- you know, deterring speculators from the, from the market. Yeah. And if, I mean, if the, the futures market for carbon, just for EUAs, let's say at the moment is maybe mm. two, three times moving forward as we progress through these levels of climate change and policy, yeah. do you think we could get to higher levels and, and in turn end up with higher futures prices? Just, you know, just because, yeah, certainly perhaps higher multiples is, you know, is, is absolutely possible. That, that shouldn't necessarily mean that we get up with higher prices. 
you know, it just might mean there's more trading, you know, the spreads are tighter, you know, there's there's more, you know, buyers and sellers, intermediaries in the market, you know, and they're constantly trading a lot more. You know, the, the whole point of that is it, you know, provides opportunities for different people with different perspectives uh, and different points of view. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the market is going to go higher or lower, you know, as we've seen in the oil, the oil market over the last two or three years as well, you know, just because you've got lots of, you know, a high degree of activity in the paper market versus the physical doesn't, you know, Obviously, we went to negative WTI prices back in uh, you know two years ago, and we're now at you know over a hundred dollars. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not necessarily based on price; it's more mm. trading and volatility and liquidity, I suppose. Mm. Absolutely. So I saw an article that said that they're going to be taking out three percent of allowances this year due to a calculation error in EUAs. Did you see that? Yeah, I did this morning. I think that was the EX exchange and um, so I, I don't know have any more details on that but um you know the market hasn't reacted to that this morning i think it's uh, you know the eu carbon market's probably down on the on the day so it doesn't seem to have had a big impact on on uh, on sentiment yeah they've been doing some funny things with the msr I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that is and maybe some of the things that have been going on there yeah so this is this is interesting so part of the reason we've had this massive run up in carbon prices over the last few years you know from 10 to 15 euros per ton all the way up to 80 90 euros per ton is because firstly it's the eu's commitments have gone up so the EU's, you know they've got sort of stringent targets on emission reductions over the next 10 10 years and beyond so that's that's inspired confidence in the market but the other thing that's driving the market is that the eu's put in place what was called a kind of, kind of like a, a non-discretionary commitment device that would reduce the excess allowances that were in the market. So we had, I think, somewhere in the region of kind of like I think 1.4 million EUAs additional in the market. And the market stability reserve, as it's known, or MSR, acts to reduce that excess supply by a certain percentage each year. Uh, until it gets to around, uh, I believe it's not like eight hundred thousand. Uh, so that gradually sort of tightens tightens the market, and the idea is then that 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 has helped you know support prices. With you know that that eight hundred thousand is kind of used for by utilities and others to to hedge the market. So the implication was that you know if all those were additional allowances were, were withheld or or held by people that needed them, once this MSR brought the the supply down to you know this level, then there'll be you know very little supply left in the market for for anyone else. In the last week, the EU have published their it's called the the Repower EU plan, which is you know after Russia invaded Ukraine, you know the EU reacted by trying to you know first of all try and ha- you know, how can we pivot away from Russia as quickly as possible, you know how can we accelerate you know, decarbonization, how can, how can we meet those targets faster and, and you know, reduce our reliance on, on Russian natural gas? The, the plan that came out this week was an estimate of the, the costs that were involved. And they're looking at sort of somewhere between 200 and 300 billion, billion euros. So to help fund that project, uh, around about 20 billion euros is going to come from the sale of this, these excess allowances or the, the allowances that are in the market stability reserve. You know, this has kind of been like a, 
kind of eye opener to the market in that they, up until this week, they thought that the MSR was a kind of, as I said, you know, a non-discretionary mechanism that politicians couldn't touch. But now it appears, based on the proposal at least, and it is still a proposal, it has to go through various stages of uh, debate and, you know, it may get voted down or it may get, you know, watered down in some way that, you know, and then get, gets through. But so it's still, you know, needs to be clear, it's still at a very early stage. But what that could do is, you know, kind of weaken trust in the, one of the key mechanisms that has supported prices over the last, you know, the last few years. Uh, so when that report came out earlier in this week, earlier this week, we saw prices fall from about, you know, kind of like 92, 93 euros a ton, all the way down to, you know, the low 80s uh, in, in the past day or so. Uh, I think it might have rebounded, you know, ever so slightly over the last you know, day or so. You know, I keep coming back to this notion that the, the carbon price is like, is like the currency of decarbonisation. You know, if you, if you want to incentivize investment in new technologies and, and you know, accelerate you know, the, the process towards net zero, then you need a high carbon price to engender that trust. But anything you do that weakens that trust potentially makes that a lot, lot harder. So I think the, the EU need to be you know, potentially very, very careful about how they actually move forward from this you know because that could potentially you know result in a much you know weaker price environment going forward which i think will you know be quite detrimental really to the eu's ambitions i naively had the understanding that the msr credits were destroyed and so now it seems like they are have the potential to go back into the market yeah, which i think is right. interesting that's right it's a you know it's a reserve so yeah it goes into a market yeah the market stability reserve kind of sucks that excess allowances out mm. each year now there was there was always a I think it's, you know, it's the innovation fund. So there was always also you know every year some of the allowances get sold to help fund this innovation. But this this proposal over the last week is something very very different from what anyone's ever really anticipated that the EU or the European Commission would would carry out. You know that degree of uncertainty, that kind of, sort of question mark over you know what does that mean? You know that's what's caused this this drop down in price. And, you know, another way I've, I've been trying to sort of think about it, you know, if you look at other compliance markets like, uh, you know, California's, they've got a, a floor price and a, and a ceiling price. And, you know, that gradually, you know, increases over time to kind of provide a, a framework for, you know, carbon prices to move in the future, you know, that's, you know, kind of politically acceptable. So what I, I'm kind of wondering is whether really that there is now kind of an implicit ceiling on carbon prices of around about 90 to 95 euros a ton you know we've seen this announcement this week back in early february there was a real kind of notion you know a lot of people came out talking about the degree to which they they were going to tighten up this thing called uh, article 29a which or stops prices from increasing well when prices increase too fast and too too quickly you know then additional supply can be brought onto the market to help dampen prices like when that happened prices were about 1995 euros a ton uh, so i'm i'm kind of i've got this thing in my mind that perhaps perhaps this is some target from the eu to try and kind of put a ceiling just below 100 100 euros equally you know if, if you're looking for a floor for the for the carbon market you know the, the german government are talking about a sort of 60 euro per ton price when the the coalition there came into power back in uh, september last year they you know, talking quite strongly about, you know, campaigning for a 60 euro floor across the EU uh, and certainly within Germany. Uh, and in, in the past week, they've come out again and said, 
we're trying to push for for a 60 euro per ton floor yeah it's, there's a lot of few lots of different moving parts at the moment and it's it's kind of hard to keep your eye on every single one and kind of understand what the potential implications are but that's, that's kind of how i'm sort of thinking about things at the moment yeah a couple of things to unpack there in my mind the first being the last time we did a podcast on carbon it was you know a couple of weeks or a month after the russian invasion of ukraine yeah and, and i remember saying to you sometimes strange things happen in war and i remember making the example that zelensky was releasing prisoners with combat experience to fight mm. which you know of course would never happen under normal circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps this whole thing with the MSR is due to, you know, commodity prices and energy security and, you know, getting off of natural gas, which obviously they're saying it is. Yeah. With that being said, I wonder, you know, if, if things cool down, I wonder if they would maybe pass this bill with the intention of selling to other countries under, I think it was article six. Do you think that they would do do something like that, sell the MSR off to other countries? I don't see that. I think I'm sure they're still, you know, the, the, the carbon market is, you know, kind of a centerpiece of the, the EU's climate policy. And I, I don't see them, you know, making it available on, on a wider basis. Uh, so I still think it's, it's kind of very much, you know, focused on the EU. But I do, I do think that, you know, the point you made about the impact of war and, you know, the, the knock-on impacts are unpredictable sometimes is, is correct in that, I think many people thought that, you know, two or three months ago that this was a, you know, the, the war had no no relevance to the carbon market. But I think because Europe's on a, a war footing, you know, they've they've uh, accelerated these measures that, you know, we've talked about. We would have never have imagined, you know, three months ago. You know, we've seen coal come back on the agenda in Europe, you know, you know in terms of like a, a short term alternative to, you know, natural gas. You know, these are things which you know, a few months ago we, we would have, you know, it, it would have been impossible to imagine a scenario that we'd, we'd need to do that. So, you know, it's, and, and there may be other sort of twists and turns again, depending on how events unfold, you know, might catch us by surprise again. Yeah. And maybe they just see an impending supply or a demand shock due to the increased production of coal and other things that are going on. Whereas before emissions are kind of trending down and now they're, you yeah. know, they've had to do what they've had to do to, energize their countries with that being said i think this has been a, a great podcast um, we got we covered a lot there so yeah. i'm gonna have to digest some of that and you know have you back on again for sure i wonder if you could just uh feel free to let the listeners know where they can find you all your your media content whatever yeah that's right so the best place for people to find me is uh well, i write a newsletter on substack called carbon risk and also on twitter that's uh, at Peter Sainsbury 7. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Joe. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.